I want to pray with you as we continue this morning in worship and uh, just join me in prayer if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for this day that you invited us back into your house, into your household, into your family. We thank you so much that you have given Jesus that we might know you and, and be with you intimately right now and forever. What an awesome, awesome gift. We thank you so much for the opportunity we have to grow. I pray today that um, as we open your scripture, your Holy Spirit, the same spirit that provides the fruit, would provide fruit for the word today, that it would manifest in our life in a way that's meaningful, not uh, religious or churchy, but true and authentic and of you. Um, Father, only you can do that work, and so we are utterly dependent upon you for it, but we expect it because you are a God who shows up over and over again. May you be glorified as we continue to seek you out together. I pray this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, uh, we're glad you're here today. We're in continuing a series called Faith and Friends. Uh, we just started last week, so you, know, you haven't missed much if it's your first day with us in the series. And we're talking about this, how these things intermingle of our, our faith life and our friends or those that we're, we're the closest to. And I want to start today with a question, which might be a weird question. I want to kind of maybe define a parameter uh, or a word parameter. It's just a word that we maybe need to come to terms with a little bit. And then and I want to ask a question about that. So here, here's, here's the word because it can be important. Well, should I give you the question first? The question is this. How important is it for a sinner to have a friend? That's the question. Now, the word I want to define is sinner because many of us have grown up in, in different backgrounds and experiences. We have all kind of ideas what it means to be a sinner. And we maybe been taught like there's this, you know, worse sins and better sins and everyone's a sinner. There's all these things. But I want to give you a very simple definition this morning of what the Bible says a sinner is. The Bible says a sinner is anyone who misses the mark. The analogy that's almost always used for this is, is a, an archer, right? That you pull up your bow and arrow, you've aimed for a target in the middle, you've let go and you've missed again, Right? A matter of fact, if, if you know anyone who shoots bows and arrows, right, we all should know a few. Uh, practice, 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 but still hitting that target is hard, super hard. And when you miss it, is it important to have a friend? It's a question that I wanted us to start with today. I was thinking about some uh, opportunities. Uh, we, we're, this whole series is about faith and friends. I was thinking about some opportunities that we have to love people around us. And, and I wanted to start with a story because I thought this was a profound story. It was after I came to faith in Jesus myself, which was a miracle of God. I didn't do anything to earn it. If you, know, if you don't know me, uh, take my word for it. I, I was a hot mess and God just saved me. And I take no credit for that at all. But after I came to faith in Christ, I began to have some Christian friends. And one of my Christian friends came to me and kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute about something? And I'm like, sure. And, and, the, and she said, uh, this is a really weird thing. And, and she kind of started to whisper. And it wasn't even in church environment. It was in a home environment. She started to whisper to me. And she said, I want to tell you about something. And I really wanted to talk to you about it. But I'm, I'm kind of concerned to tell you. I don't know what you're going to think. Because she's also a believer, by the way. Right? And we had that in common. We knew that. And we had a relationship. She said, I just wanted to talk to you. God laid this thing on my heart that's kind of weird. The person I'm talking about is from the area, not from Highlands, so you don't know them, but they're from the area. And they said, you know, I was driving in and out of St. Louis and God, I saw a strip club and 
God gave me this heart for, for people who are stripping for a living, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, so I've been praying about it for a while, and, and you know, God said, well, what, what if you uh, did something to show them they're loved? Right? What, what if you would do something without judgment to show them they're loved? And I, I, I was listening to this woman tell me a story. I thought, why is she whispering about why? Why would this be such a scandalous thing to love someone who needs to know they're loved? Now, by the way, I'm not picking on people who strip for a living because all of us need to know we're loved. But they might be not normally shown love in this way. Well, so she asked me, she said, what do you think of that? Is that a crazy idea? We're, we're, we think we're going to try it, but what do you think? Is that a biblical idea? I mean, should I be seen in a place like that? What will people think of me if I come and go? What am I doing there? Matter of fact, some people who were Christians, I told her, don't do this. Don't, don't support them in that lifestyle. Don't, don't sh- what are you thinking? You're a Christian. How could you walk into a place like that? How could you even, they should come to church. If they come to church, well, yeah, then, then we can love them. But don't go there. I said, wow, really? Someone s- said that? Yeah. What, do you, what do you think, Bill? I said, I think go. You know? Well, you know why, guys? Because God said to do it. That's why. So go do that. But what do you think? I mean, do you think sinners need a friend? Today we're going to talk about that. We're going to come back to that story, by the way. We're going to come back to that story. As a matter of fact, some of you may have heard part of that story before. You maybe have heard me talk about it. But I want to get into the Word this morning and talk a little bit about, you know, last week we said that uh, Jesus called us his friends. (laughs) He he said, you're no longer servants, but friends, because you know my business. What an awesome opportunity we have in Jesus. But today I want to talk uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. I want to hear what Jesus says um, about who he is to us. Um, we are friends to him, but who he is to us. So turn, if you would, um, to Matthew eleven, nineteen. We're going to read around it. Same deal as we talked about last week. We want to read around it a little bit because we want to honor God's word and not just rip things out of their context and make it say what we want to say. We want to read what God's word says. Um, should be on page 682, I think, if you use one of our Bibles on the end of the chair rows or the table in front of you. We're going to start in verse 16 because it kind of gives us a full thought, at least. I would encourage you, by the way, to read this anytime at your leisure or re-examine it. This is Jesus speaking, Matthew eleven sixteen, 16, and he says this. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting on the market, in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Because John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. And then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. I told you last week, we always want to talk a little bit about what's happening around this text. We really want to be fair. We want to learn from what God's word says. 
Um, who is he speaking to here? You, if you look up a little bit ahead, you'll see that he's speaking to the crowds. Um, as a matter of fact, he's speaking to the crowds about John the Baptist. And the reason he's speaking to the crowds about John the Baptist is because John the Baptist is in prison. He has sent out some of his disciples to say, are you the one who is to come or we should expect someone else? So it's a time of testing for Jesus. Time of examination almost, I guess, from John the Baptist. Are you the one? Meaning the Messiah, God's chosen. And it's important to recognize that because in this context then we begin to understand a bit of the story about uh, why Jesus would bring up these two kind of intermingled uh, revelations from God through John and now through the Son of Man as Jesus self-refers here. So he's talking to the crowds. He's, he's talking about what? He's talking about this generation. In verse um, 16 it says, to what can I compare this generation? Jesus says, what, wh- who am I comparing this group to? meaning all the people who were around him at the time, and I would say of the age, of the time that we live in now. This is really interesting, but there's this quote. It's very poetic. I don't know if anybody likes poetry, you know. The Bible is um, a beautiful book, as well as an instructional book. Sometimes I read it very um, uh, instructionally. Um, But listen to this. It's always catches me off guard. He says, you're like children studying the marketplaces, saying, uh, calling out to others, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Oh, what? Like kids sitting in the marketplace crying out to others? And I looked at that, and I actually looked at some commentaries on this, which I was even more confused. But I, I want, it looks to me, the way the word reads, it says, you, they, this generation, are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out, we played the flute, but you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge. That's kind of a somber song. And you didn't mourn. It sounds to me like they're saying, we did these things and you didn't respond the way we expected. Right? The generation. When we were happy, we wanted you to be happy and you weren't happy. And then when we were sad, we wanted you to be sad and you weren't sad. Crying out. And this is why he says this is their expectation in verse 18, because John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he's a, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinner, sinners. So here's the accusation. Whatever the world wanted, God was doing something else. The way some of the commentators said was whatever God was doing, the world was doing something else, Right? But isn't that interesting? Jesus, the the thing overall is this. You have failed me. The people around are saying, you have failed me. You've not been where I needed you to be. I want to dig in. We're going to focus on 19. That's why it was the reference, reference verse up here. Jesus says this about the Son of Man. He came eating and drinking. You remember John the Baptist, he was very strict. Aesthetic is the word, I think. It's where you deny yourself everything. If, if there was anyone who fasted, it was John the Baptist. Anyone, he went out and lived in the wilderness. He did all these things that Jesus is um, juxtaposing, making opposite of his own revelation from God, what he's called to do, right? John the Baptist was out in the desert preaching. He was eating locusts and wild honey, wearing camel's hair and raving. Repent, make straight the way of the Lord. 
right? Jesus, the, 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 the um, Savior is coming. And, but Jesus says this about himself. He says, the Son of Man came, came eating and drinking. You would almost expect if John the Baptist had come denying these things, not eating or drinking, that Jesus would come in the same way. But it's not true. It's not true. Jesus came in the, the other way, or I would almost say the opposite way. We're going to talk about why that is in a minute, right? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I want to tell you something about Jesus. And this might, I don't know how you're going to feel about it really, but I said this to y'all before though, but Jesus is the kind of guy who got invited to parties. Like if someone was going to have a really crazy party, Jesus was going to be invited. Like maybe not at first, say, oh, he's one of those holy guys. But when they got to know Jesus, they would invite him. They would invite him. Jesus would get invited to parties all the time. As a matter of fact, I want to share with you this morning, um, whenever I uh, do weddings, and Steve, I've been talking about um, working together on order of service for uh, weddings and, and things like that. Uh, I use this little black book. It's not a Bible, by the way. Um, it's kind of interesting. It's a really old book as well, though. It's called the Book of Common Prayer. And it's words you've all heard before, but I wanted to, to, to share with you a part that almost always gets, I think, we go right over it, you know, and I say it every time I'm involved in a ceremony. It usually starts like, dearly beloved, um, and we have come together today, right? You, you've heard this before, why we've joined together. But in the middle of this, this is what the, well, I'll just read the first two lines. Dearly beloved, we've come together in the presence of God to witness the, and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. That's marriage, okay? The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation, and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And it goes on from there. But I feel like that second line almost always gets missed. It, it says, um, I'm going to read it again. Our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this matter of life by his presence and his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. You all know the story, right? This is the water to wine story. They ran out of wine, and Jesus made more. He was there. And now you might say it was a wedding, not a party, but they were, they were having a party. As a matter of fact, they were so having a party that when they had the wine, the good wine at the end, they said, wow, this wine is different. Most people serve the really bad wine when everyone's drunk, <laughs> but you waited and gave us the best wine at the end. I want you to think about that for a minute. They usually give the bad wine to drunk people, but you gave the good wine to drunk people. When Mary came to Jesus and said, hey, they're out of wine, he said, don't bother me with this. It's not my time. And then she said, do whatever he says. And he said, water to wine. I want to say um, real quick that when we're talking about what John the Baptist did and what Jesus did, I'm not talking this morning about what we should do. That's not the primary importance of the text. That's not the primary reason to go, oh, so Jesus had ate and drank so I can eat and drink. John the Baptist didn't eat and drink so I cannot eat and drink. It's not the primary purpose 
of what Jesus is talking about here. So it's not primarily about whether we can choose, as Chris shared this morning already, whether we can choose to eat or to drink or to not eat, not drink. As a matter of fact, if you just remember what I shared about John the Baptist, Jesus did not condemn John the Baptist in any way. He didn't say he was wrong. He just said, that's how he did it. This is how I did it. Came eating and drinking. But the truth is this, that many in our times, in our culture, in our generation, have a non-biblical understanding of who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, many people in the churches have a non-biblical understanding about who Jesus is. Jesus, and, and, and it's funny because if you read the text, it's replete with examples of Jesus showing up in places where no good, godly man would go. I'm saying that a bit sarcastically. I'm not saying Jesus was not a good, godly man. I'm saying our expectations of him are wrong. As a matter of fact, if Jesus were here in the flesh with us right now, he would show up in the most difficult places of our life. Jesus would show up in every place of our life. There would be nowhere that he would be ashamed to go with us. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because many of us wrestle with this idea. We think that when we sin, we're far from God and God can't possibly be there. And then when we don't sin, we're closer to God and God is obviously there. Listen, Jesus, God, is always with us wherever we are. He shows up every, in every part of our life. Now, there's one uh, counterexample in the story of Jesus. The people who thought they were better than Jesus... He didn't seem to, sh he showed up to rebuke, but didn't show up a whole lot of other times. Isn't that interesting? I'm thinking about this idea of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus would recline at the table with them. I, I'm, I'm trying to think when he sat with a, a, a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Must have happened, right? But people who were think, thought they were better than Jesus, maybe not so much. I also want to say before we move on here, notice the false accusations. Look at what the word says in 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He admits that. That's the truth. Right? Not like John the Baptist. Different. And what's the word say? They said, here is a glutton and a drunkard. That's the false accusation. Here is a, a glutton and a drunkard. Someone who is full of the flesh. Someone is, you remember, e e even when he was walking with his disciples through the fields, they were picking heads of grain. Remember, right? They were eating and drinking all the time. They were enjoying each other's company. And the false accusation is, he's doing that for his own fulfillment. He's doing that for his own satisfaction. Look at what the word says. They accuse him of being a glutton and a drunk. Jesus, Right? They told John the Baptist he who was, had a demon, but Jesus is a drunk. And then they said this, which is interesting. Another false accusation. And he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. When I read that and I thought, oh, wait a minute. You know, because it, it's like if you compare the text to what he said about John, John had a demon. John obviously didn't have a demon, right? It's, it's a false accusation, just like what John was. What, do you remember, by the way, 
John was born with the Spirit of God. Do you remember that? He was anointed from birth. For them to say that he was of a demon was the opposite of the truth. So here we must have the opposite of the truth. A false accusation. But how is that a false accusation? Because is Jesus not a friend to tax collectors and sinners? Is it not what we see in the scriptures? In this case, it was a false accusation. <laughs> that makes sense. It wasn't a false accusation. It was a false accusation. He, what they were saying was not a bad thing. <laughs> I was thinking about how you might say, you say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> you friend of tax collectors and sinners. Right? I want to do some short work with this word tax collector. We won't spend a lot of time on it because I, I find it kind of makes my head, scratch my head a little bit. But um, this idea of tax collector, we talked about it before, but they weren't well loved. They weren't respected. They weren't liked. But I want to say a few things, right? Matthew was a tax collector. The, the apostle, the disciple, Matthew was a tax collector himself when Jesus called him, right? So, so we have that very clear example of Jesus um, loving uh, tax collectors directly. It seems like they were asking the same question of Jesus in this false accusation. Jesus, how could you hang out with people like that? How could you hang out with people like that? You know what that leads to. What will people think of you? What will people say about you behind your back? But the truth is this. Jesus would regularly hang out, converse, like dialogue with sinners tax collectors. I just, that doesn't work for me with this, the sinner thing. I totally, totally understand. He would teach sinners. He would touch sinners. Like, he would physically contact them, right? And he would eat with them. Even reclining at the table as a friend. In their homes, welcomed. See, what happens is this. That that kind of love that kind of friendship drove religious people crazy. It just drove them crazy. Because in their mind, it was so much easier to see who the righteous and unrighteous were if you never hung out together. That makes it very easy. Those people over there, <coughs> they're not like us. They're unrighteous. But we're the righteous ones. It would drive them absolutely nuts. Why is he over there? He would go right from the synagogue teaching them about the scriptures and doctrine to eating a meal with people who were far from God, who were unclean. And, and, and you see, there's a tendency there to do that, to say, they're not like us. Why, what are you thinking? Why would you hang out with them? It drove them crazy. It drove them crazy. As a matter of fact, listen to me. It drives us crazy now. It drives us crazy. When we see people living this out, this call of God in their life. I want to say again, this is not about what we should or shouldn't do primarily. But it's about what Jesus did. What Jesus did. He was a friend, a lover of sinners. I asked you earlier, do you think a sinner needs a friend? Do you think a sinner could use a friend? The last thing that's recorded here in Matthew in this section is Jesus says these words after the accusations, the false accusations, as if it's a bad thing. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. 
Wisdom is proved right by what she does. See, here's the thing, and this is why it matters. Because in John, who is not eating and drinking, God was trying to reach people who are far from him. Repent and get ready. The Messiah is coming. And in Jesus, who came eating and drinking, God goes to the other end of the spectrum to try to reach people, to show them how much they're loved, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. God had used both these things to, for his glory to bring repentance. As a matter of fact, that's the, um, the next thing that's found in verse 20. When Jesus began, then Jesus began to denounce cities in which his miracles had been performed because they didn't repent. The miracles weren't miracles for their own sake. It wasn't like, wow, look how cool that was what Jesus did. It was supposed to turn your hearts back to God. Not keep living in sin. Not keep denying his sovereignty. But here's the thing. As humans, we have a fundamental problem. We have a fundamental problem. And it's this. We are facing away from God. Our default mechanism the time of birth is we are facing away from God. Sometimes people like to think, oh, well, no, kids, kids get it. Kids get God, right? Draw me a picture of God. Tell me what you think of God. They might get glimpses, but they are facing away from God. Primarily facing away from God. As a matter of fact, when we sin, we, by definition, are facing away from God. By definition. Because the word repent means turn around. Do you think a sinner needs a friend? This is our fundamental problem. We're looking the wrong way. Here's something that I'm not sure if you ever thought about. And I've discussed this with some people in their lives. It's important to understand this fundamental truth for me and for all of you. Our tendency when we sin is to hide. That's our tendency. Get alone. Isolate. Cover up. You know where I see this in Scripture? The very first sin. Adam and Eve in the garden. They're hanging out with God. Everything's fine. They disobey God and they hide. Think about that. The default mechanism for humanity is to hide from God when you sinned. Peter, when he realized who Jesus was in the boat, said, get away from me. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I, I'm... You're too holy. You're not like me. He was stuck in a boat with him. The lunatic who's in the graveyard, who is cutting himself and having seizures, didn't want Jesus. He said, what do you want with me, Jesus of Nazareth? No, I don't want this. Why? The default response to sinful living is to, be, to hide yourself from God, to isolate yourself but here's the crazy thing, folks. And this is why Jesus earns the title of a friend of sinners. Because in your sin, Jesus is with you. He's with you in that moment. Like, I hope you get that. We, we think Jesus, I nothing to do with them. No, Jesus runs to sinners. Like, when people are suffering, Jesus is suffering with them. Like, he's there. He's not absent. He's not over there somewhere else taking a coffee break. He's in it. He's truly a lover of sinners. 
And he's with us. The truth is that in our greatest sin struggle, Jesus, listen, is our friend. Just let that sink in a minute. In our greatest sin struggles, Jesus is our friend. You don't hear that very often, right? The world, misunderstanding of Jesus. The churches, misunderstanding of Jesus. So here's the weird thing. You and I have to get in this habit that when we screw up, when we miss the mark, that instead of doing what we tend to do and run off and hiding, oh, I screwed up again, that instead we turn our face toward Jesus and we just run to Jesus. He's with us. But listen, repent. <laughs> turn back around. Jesus, this is why you're here. Jesus, this is why you came. Jesus, I know that your word says you love me in spite of my sin. That's crazy. And instead of hiding, flee to him. Run to him. You think you need a friend when you're a sinner? Repent. Turn back to God who's provided salvation and solution and friendship and family, community. The church is not for holy people. It's for sinners who are turning back to God. It's for us. I told you we come back to the story we opened with. <clears throat> My friend did it. Praise God. And the act of boldness and kind of rebellion, the people who said don't, who she respected, who said don't, she started showing up with bags. Bags of stuff that was practical. Women said, what are you doing here? She would go backstage into the dressing rooms and she would give them bags. Just something to, she would make them all fancy. <laughs> Put them stuff fragrances that made him feel special and, and uh, she even said you know some of that stuff they might use I mean, they might use it to, to continue their sin filled lives but she just gave it to him gave him a hug we love you she kept going back and going back she began to have a relationship and this is what happened well I told you already I said yeah do it God said do it do it I don't know how long gone by. I would say six months to a year, maybe even more. I was somewhere and she took me aside. Hey, do you, do you remember when I asked you about that thing? I Should I do to, to take the food, the, uh, not the food, the bags to the strippers and to show them the love? Should, do you remember? I said, yeah, of course I remember. How can I forget that? That's not an ordinary conversation to have with somebody in the church. Can I go hang out with strippers? <laughs> yep. <laughs> she said, um, you won't believe what happened. There was this one girl, and we just connected. She began to tell me about her life and where she'd come from. And my heart broke for her, and I just kept praying for her. I didn't do anything. I just kept praying. And then one day I was bringing a bag, and she said, can I ask you a question? Sure, you can ask me a question. Do, do you think I could come to your church? Do you think... They would let me. My friend said, yeah. Come with me. I'll meet you there. And she said, sure enough, she showed up. She started coming to church. Nobody knew where she'd come from. And she began to hear the word preached and 
hear the gospel. Listen. And she believed. Do you think she needed a friend? See, folks, that is a miracle of God. One sinner turned to repentance for the glory of God and for the good of that person. I don't know where you are, and I don't know what's been on your life. I don't know who God's had on your heart. What crazy thing God's been calling you to do or what very normal thing God's been calling you to do. But I want you to know this. God is a friend of sinners. And we ought to have some awareness about that. This morning, I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond. Um, I asked Chris to leave some of the candy up here. Um, We're going to share communion together. And I want to explain to everyone what communion is, why we do it as a church, and what it means for us. For uh, the church, those who are believing in Jesus, communion is an offering of Jesus himself. It's a reminder that on the day he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, eat all of you and every time you do it, remember me. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And then the word says that afterwards he took a cup and uh, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is a cup in my blood. A blood is offered as a new promise that sins would be forgiven. And he said, every time you taste the cup, I want you to remember me. The word says this, that every time we take this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. But I want to tell you something else about the table. And I hope you understand this. We all come out of different backgrounds and experiences. We all come from different things. Maybe we have some pain or don't even know. We don't even know. Where do we belong? Whose are we? Jesus set a table for friends. And if that's you today, I mean, I want to be wide open. If that's you, and you go, you know, I just need a friend. I don't mean a friend. You just need a friend like Jesus. I'm going to invite you to come up and have communion. For the church, we recognize in the bread and the juice our Savior. But listen, we first knew him as a friend. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity. I thank you for the truth that you made a way where there was no way that your son died on the cross, that we could be free of sin, and that we could know and enjoy and love you forever and that this is a taste of that, what is to come. I thank you, Father, that you are a friend of sinners. I thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to save. I thank you that he came um, in such an unexpected way. I pray, Father, today as we come to your table, we recognize you in it. And I pray that for those here who just need to turn, just turn back. This will be their day. Just turn back to you. This is about you, not us. It's your table, not ours. May you be glorified as we respond together. I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.